Hi, good morning, Forest View. Thank you so much for joining us. This is our first Sunday of Lent, which, which is a season where we as Christians, we prepare to celebrate Easter. Now, usually when you think about having to prepare for celebrating something, you're thinking about getting the party ready, you're getting decorations, all that kind of thing. And while all those things are great and important about in celebrating Easter, actually, they're not that important, but all those things are great if you want to do that. Uh, But for us, actually, this process of celebrating Easter, uh, it actually, the, the thing that drives it is a deeper awareness and understanding about what it is that we are actually celebrating, that that in Easter we are proclaiming, we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that that he is alive, that the tomb is empty. And in order to get to that empty tomb, there is first a Good Friday, the, the cross, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, reconciling us to God. And throughout the Lenten season, This is a season where we as a church, we hardwire it into our DNA. We force ourselves to grapple with the reality of death. That our sin, that our disobedience, our desire to go about life our own way and try and push God out of the picture, that ultimately that leads to death. And so throughout this season, we are going through a process of examining ourselves and discerning and listening to God's Spirit as He reveals to us what in us needs to die so that we can experience God's resurrection life. This is why throughout Lent, people will give things up. They'll refrain from maybe using their their phone or maybe listening to their podcasts or maybe some people give up food or a specific type of food like chocolate or, or whatever it is. And the reason for that is not because giving up those things somehow make God love us more. And we don't do it because those are necessarily bad things. We give those things up to create space within our life to intentionally think about what are the parts in us that need to die, that are out of sync with the heart of God. And maybe some of us, we're not giving things up, but we're actually adding new things to our life. Uh, Maybe it's extra times of quiet, more time walking and spending time with God. Whatever it is, I want to encourage you throughout this Lent season, do not run away from the cross. Do not run away from the reality of death that we all face the consequences for our sin, but instead charge right into those thoughts, because on the other side is resurrection and new life, God doing something new in us. And throughout this season, we are uh, getting ready to celebrate Easter, and one of those things that we're going to be doing to celebrate Easter is we are going to be having a baptism service, which is this ultimate public declaration example of what it means to surrender our lives in faith to Jesus. And so actually, we will have a bunch of people, uh, we've got a bunch of people signed up who are going to be getting baptized. And the process of them going under the water is representative of this dying and then being brought up out of the water is this example of being risen with Christ, of entering into this new life. And so it's going to be an amazing morning. We're really excited. I'm not sure if there's still spaces, but if that is something God is putting on your heart, please contact me, reach out to me. I would love to talk with you about this process. 
Well, throughout this Lenten season, as I said, we are going to be looking at, well, the Lenten season forces us to, to, to look at and embrace and take seriously the reality of death. I know, happy topic. But for us, we are going to be journeying through the book of Ruth. Now, Ruth is an Old Testament book. And so for many people, it's kind of like, well, why, why would we be looking at this? I mean, isn't Lent about Jesus and the journey to the cross? And I, I would simply say this, is that there is so much going on within this incredible old book that ultimately points to the coming of Jesus. And it reveals God's heart and his intention for us as we walk through a life that has to take seriously the reality of death and sin. And yet the discovery that this is a God of new life who doesn't end things in death, but rather is always up to something. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Ruth chapter 1. We're going to be working our way through this book throughout the series. Uh, but before we do that, uh, let's start with prayer. Gracious and heavenly Father, we come to you this morning just acknowledging that we are a people who often get so caught up in distractions that our hearts are so often pulled in different directions. And so God, would your spirit center us this morning that we may hear and discern your voice in our lives. Who are you calling us to be? Where are you calling us to go? What are you inviting us to leave behind so that we can step into your new life? We live in a culture that is terrified of death. And yet because of the hope that we have in the resurrection, Lord, I pray that we would not shy away from these difficult, scary things but rather in the midst of them, we would run to you and the hope that you bring. So we ask this in the name of your incredible son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, Ruth chapter one. Uh, we're going to be reading verses one to 18 this morning. I would encourage you to open up a Bible if you have it, if you have an app on your phone or whatever it is. Um, it's just going to be so much better to be able to have the text right in front of you. We will have a bunch of stuff up on the screen, but not every single verse. So I want to invite you to open up your Bible with me. Ruth chapter one, starting at verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Nalon and Kilon. They were Ephrites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons, they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there were about ten, there were about 10 years, both Nalon and Kilon also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. 
When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home from there. With her two daughter-in-laws, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So my family and I, we currently live in Kitchener. And uh, we, we've been in the process. We want to move closer to this church uh, and be closer to all of you. We miss you. We want to be hanging out with you. We can't wait to be able to go for walks and play in your backyards and, and all those different things. So we are in the search. But right now, we are in this place of trying to get our house ready to sell. We actually wanted to do that a year ago, but then life got crazy. COVID-19 happened. Just chaotic year. And so now we're trying to go, okay, how do we make this happen? What do we need to do? And we've talked with our realtor and we've talked with other friends who have experience with selling their house and getting a really good price for their house when they've sold it. And one of the things that we've been told is that you, there's all sorts of different things that you can do to invest in your house, different upgrades, things that you can do to make your house more valuable. And so my wife, Julie, and I, we put together this list that we're slowly working our way through of all the different things that we need to do to our house. And there's a bunch of things on that list that are kind of like the cosmetic, like, oh yeah, we should just do this because it will help get the price a little bit higher and we're doing this because, oh yeah, that'll help, that, it'll make it look better, all those kinds of things. But then there's a bunch of things on the list that, that were actually on the list when we first moved into the house six, seven years ago. I mean, there's certain things about, oh yeah, okay, we were just gonna do this for a while. We were just gonna leave this wall the way it was for a while. We're going to store this stuff in the basement for a while. And now I'm looking at that list and going, wait a minute, it was just going to be for a while. And somehow it just became our new normal. 
how many of you can relate to that experience? Maybe it has nothing to do with your house. Maybe you're one of those people, you're just on top of the renovations, on top of the decorations, on top of the organization. But, but maybe it's somewhere else in your life. It was only going to be this for a while. And somehow it just kind of became the new normal. The thing that was originally intended to be temporary becomes permanent. I was only going to live in that place or that city for a while. I was only going to date that guy, that girl for a while. I was only going to be working at that business or with that company for a while. And next thing you know, you look at the calendar and years, sometimes decades, have gone by. I even laugh now as, as, as we navigate this season of COVID-19 and the quarantine and the lockdowns and all those kinds of things. And for, for how many conversations I've had with people who used to be at the gym every day and then COVID-19 happened, the gym shut down and they're like, oh, well, it's only going to be for a while. I can take a break from exercise. And then they're like, oh, wait a minute. I haven't broken a sweat since last March. It was only going to be a while, but suddenly those, those exceptions, those compromises, they become our new normal. They become our routine. They become our habit. They become our brand new standard. The story of Ruth, it begins in a season of upheaval and difficulty. Ruth Chapter 1, verse 1, the kickoff verse. It's interesting just how ambiguous the story begins. It doesn't give us any names. It gives us a situation. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, the writer of Ruth, she is brilliant because she begins this story not with just saying there was once upon a time there was this man. She's talking about a historical story, but begins the story by, by creating this open invitation for all of us to see ourselves in this story. The original audience, as they would have been reading this, they would see this word, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, the season of the judges, if you were to go through the, the Old Testament, it starts with the Pentateuch. Uh, and so those are the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then comes the story of Joshua, which involves the, the people of Israel traveling into the promised land. And then we have the book of Judges, which essentially is like them moving in, unpacking, clearing things out in God's promised land. Now, if you were to go through and read through the entire book of Judges, you would find some really disturbing stuff. This is not the highlight real stories for the people of Israel. And if you go through a kid's Bible, they cherry pick a couple different exciting stories with heroes of faith. But, but if you actually go through it, there are these vicious downward cycles and trends that you see happen throughout the entire book. There's a refrain that comes up again and again, Judges chapter 2, verse 11. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. And so there's this story, okay, God raises up a leader and things kind of come together and then that leader dies and then 
Israel goes astray and does evil in the eyes of the Lord. Just go to the next slide. Uh, in Judges chapter 3, verse 7, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. So, so starts, they just start serving one other God. Now they're serving two other gods. You can actually go through the entire book. This phrase comes up again and again. Just uh, next slide. Go for one more. Uh, in those days, uh, this is actually what it begins to say. You see this spiral downward to It's not just they're doing what's wrong in the eyes of the Lord. It says this, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And so when the story of Ruth begins in the season of the judges, when they ruled, I mean, this is a season where everything is up in the air. It's, it's a season of disorder, and it is a season of disobedience in Israel's history. It's a season where people needed a leader. They needed vision. They didn't know what was right. And so, actually, let's go back to our Ruth 1, verse 1. Sorry, let's go back just a few. I want to highlight two more things, just some observations that I think are important. So, so the people there in Israel, they're in a city called Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem literally means house of bread, and we are told that there is a famine in the house of bread. And there is a man, he has, two, he has a wife and two sons, and so what they do in order to survive the famine is they leave God's promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land that, that Israel has just gone through this massive journey through the wilderness to enter into. And he takes his family and they travel to Moab, a pagan city or a pagan region where they worship different gods, uh, actually detestable gods. Uh, they, they are commanded throughout the Torah, do not intermingle with the people from Moab because they will lead you astray from God. And so this is a story about less than ideal situations. What do you do when you just feel like you need to make compromises just to survive? Verse two, it starts to go zoom in a little bit. It begins more to become more specific. And so the man's name was Elimelech, which means my uh, God is my king or the Lord is my king. And his wife's name was Naomi, which means pleasant. Now, interesting thing just happening here. Elimelech, he is, uh, his name is about allegiance to God. And yet for him, a famine comes up and he takes off. He leaves. So there's this irony. The house of bread, Bethlehem, is a place where there's a famine. And the guy whose name means allegiance to God is taking off at the first signs of trouble. And he and his family, he takes his two sons and they head to Moab and it says they lived there. And so what begins is, oh, it's just for a while and suddenly, oh wait, it's actually becoming a little bit more permanent. Uh, skipping ahead, Elimelech dies. And Elimelech's sons, they grow up, and it says they've been there for about 10 years. No children. And then they, die, they marry two Moabite women, a woman named Orpah, a woman named Ruth. And then the two sons die. Now, a few things that are important to highlight. Now, for us, we see that loss and our hearts break 
You know, we think of the father who has died, we think of the two sons that have died, and we think of the mother and, and the, two, uh, the two wives who are left behind. But, but at the same time, one of the things that's most significant about this loss is that in the ancient world, it is not just simply a loss of the men who had died, but the fact that they died without any children. Now, Ruth and Orpah and Naomi, they lived in a patriarchal society. We live in an egalitarian society where as much as we try, men and women are viewed as equal and have the same kind of opportunities present to them. In the ancient world, and specifically in Israel and in uh, Moab, it was a patriarchal society, which essentially means men, the world revolves around men and a woman's value and worth is entirely determined by what they can contribute towards men. Now, there are some interesting things that are happening throughout the book of Ruth that actually challenge their, the world in which they live. There's all these exciting things we're going to get to later on in the series. And for us, this is not about us coming to this and judging it. This is just simply us saying, this is the way it was for Ruth and for her world. And so these women, they are abandoned. They are left without resources, support, and protection and in the ancient world, if you wanted to know what gave a woman value, or at least in their society, what gave a woman's value, the way that you find that out is you count her sons. And Naomi, she has no sons. And Orpah and Ruth, they have no sons. In the eyes of their culture, they are all zeros. They are all considered extreme failures. And they are all in this place of desperation, and their survival is very much at risk. And so Naomi says this to her daughter-in-laws, going to verse 8, 8 and 9. Then Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. Essentially says like, I'm not your mother anymore. Go back to your other mother. She has so much more to offer. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. She says, you've been great daughters. Get away from me. And then actually in the next, for, uh, go to the uh, next slide, verse 13. Uh, she says, uh, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And so for her, she's saying, you still have time. There's still hope for you. You can go find another husband. You can go and have a, your sons of your own. It doesn't have to end for you the way that it is going to end for me. If you, need to, if you are going to survive, you need to have a husband in this world. You can sense the desperation and the sadness and the heartbreak. It's all just wrapped up in Naomi's speech. Then in verse 13, the girls basically are said, no, we're not going to leave you. The women, we're, we're going to stay with you, Naomi. We're here. We're with you. And then she says, no, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And so for Naomi, she looks 
at her situation. She looks at her circumstance and, her, and all that has happened, all of the loss that she has endured, all the pain that she feels. And she sees it as the Lord has turned against her. I mean, this isn't just some bad luck that she has happened to stumble into. This is, this is the God of the universe has turned against her and is causing her to suffer. Maybe she perceives it as being punished for the decisions her husband's made, or maybe she just perceives it as this God who is angry and fed up with her. And so she just says, no, it is more bitter for me than you. The Lord's hand has turned against me. I am cursed. Get away from me. Get away while you still can. It's almost like she's saying, like, it's like that scene in the movie where the person befriends the wild animal and they, you know, they're, they're becoming the wild wolf or the wild horse or whatever it is. And they need to get that wolf, they need to go back out into the wild and like, scram, get away from me. And they're throwing rocks or whatever it is. Essentially, you can see that here in Naomi. She is convinced that, that God has turned against her and that everyone needs to get away from her. Suffering and pain can alienate. Often, if you're familiar with the book of Rome, uh, Rome, Ruth, you'll find that often the book is talked about as being a, a romance story. And while there's certainly romance in it, I actually think that is, is a really twisted way that, that predominantly in the Western culture, we have read that book. Uh, because in many other cultures, it's actually read as a story about tragedy and suffering. Many biblical commentators actually have referred to saying it. It's actually a female story of Job. If you're not familiar, Job is the story in the, in the Old Testament about a man who is good and faithful to God and loses what seems like everything and the questions that arise for him and his relationship to God in the midst of all that loss. And so in Ruth, you see Naomi, this female Job character. Actually, I love, there was this one biblical commentator. I was listening to an interview with her and she was talking about why she loves the book of Ruth. And she talks about Naomi, how Naomi is, is, is like, it's like a, a female version of the story of Job, only the suffering is worse and there's less mansplaining. And so, which is just, if you've read Job, it just, I just think it's brilliant. Um, and so this story is about this woman who is going through pain and suffering and God, why are you doing this to me? And everyone, please just get away from me. And so Orpah, the one daughter-in-law, she hears this command, get away from me. And so she leaves. She ultimately goes, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to leave. And, and it's hard for us to blame her. The text certainly doesn't because it is hard to be around some people who are hurting and going through such immense pain. I've found in my own life that sometimes being around the people who are going through such difficult things, it can be incredibly scary because it forces me to confront the various different lies and, and it forces me to confront the shallowness of so many of my answers and my reasons that I try to give to explain the suffering that they are going through. I mean, how often is like, oh, well, just look on the bright side. How, how often do we just find, oh, well, it's not really that bad. 
or, or how often we find ourselves trying to explain it and make sense of the suffering that they are going through. I remember this experience as I was starting off as a youth pastor, this one particular, particular boy in my youth group, junior high boy, came from a really rough setting, situation, going through a lot in his life. And I remember going out to Tim Hortons, we're both drinking our chocolate milk together and we're talking about the stuff that he's going, which was amazing because junior boy, high boys often aren't the most talkative guys. And so he's sharing things and he's asking like, why in the world would God make me do this? Or why is God making this happen in my life? And I remember I'm going into like this apologetic mode, like, oh, well, it's because this and this and this, and you need to look on the bright side of this and, and trying to give this logical answer to him. And I remember this look on his face just as I'm saying it all, he says, yeah, I don't believe that at all. I have this beautiful, logical explanation for all that he was going through and suffering. And he's just like, nope, that rings hollow. There's no way that that is true. The suffering and pain that pe people experience, I think one of the reasons it sometimes can be so difficult for us to be around people who are suffering is because it exposes the falseness in our pat answers. And so Orpah leaves, and Naomi says, go back to, let's see, where are we? Uh, verse 15, he says this, Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Leave me alone. Ruth, get out of here while you still can. This God has turned his back on me. He's given up on me. He's forsaken me. Go back to your old gods. And Naomi's response, or sorry, Ruth's response is, in my opinion, one of the most powerful words spoken by someone other than Jesus or God throughout the entire Bible. She says this, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. She says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to give up on you. And I'm not going to forsake you. There's a term that is used within the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word. Is the word chesad. And it's a word that actually comes up earlier on in the story. If you go back to verse 8, uh, this is what it says. Then Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go back, each of you, to your mother's homes. May the Lord show you kindness, the word is kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. The word is chesad. Now, in English, it's a word that we often will translate a whole bunch of different ways. This is a word that is full, is like jam-packed with meaning. And quite honestly, we, we, we miss out on some of the depth of the Old Testament when we ignore the word. So the word is chesad, it's a Hebrew word, and we will often translate it as words like kindness, loving kindness, mercy, loyalty, steadfast, unfailing, unchanging, and sometimes we will just simply translate it as the word love. And it is this idea of God's covenantal, loving faithfulness. A love that is not about following all the rules and trying to keep safe, but is a love that says, no, no, I am going to journey with you and stay with you unconditionally, no matter what. 
I love the way Carolyn Curtis James puts it in her book, The Gospel of Ruth. She says this, chesad is driven not by duty or legal obligation, but by a bone-deep commitment, a loyal, selfless love that motivates a person to do voluntarily what no one has a right to expect or ask of them. They have the freedom to act or to walk away without the slightest injury to their reputation, yet they willingly pour themselves out for the good of someone else. Throughout the Old Testament, this word chesad is used to describe God's love for his people Israel. It's a love that says, no matter how off the rails you go, I am still bound to you. I'm still going to be with you. I want to redeem you. I want to save you. I want to lead you out of the sin and suffering and death that you're experiencing. I want to continue to walk with you. And Ruth, in this story, this pagan woman who grew up worshiping other gods, she is created, she has had this relationship with Naomi and she goes, while Naomi feels that God has abandoned her and given up on her, Ruth says, I'm going to be here with you. I'm going to show you that God hasn't given up on you. There is this story about a boy, four years old, and uh, his parents decide it's time for, for him to sleep in, uh, sorry, it's about a little girl. She's, it's time for her to sleep in her own room. And as the mother is putting her to bed, she's afraid. And she says, well, we'll be near you. Don't worry, we're just over in the next room. And then sometime later, the mother quietly came into the room and heard the little girl crying and then said to her mother, she, the little girl said to her mother, I'm frightened. I don't want to be alone. And so the mother said, well, you're not alone. God is here with you. And the little girl, she had this brilliant response. She says, I know God is here, but right now I need someone with skin. The New Testament the story, the sending of Jesus coming in and entering into the world, it, it tells us a story about a God who sees us in our broken state, estranged, far off, blind to his presence and love in our lives and on a collision course with death. And Jesus comes and he takes on human flesh and he walks with us and he goes where we go. And he dies where we should die so that death would not separate us. I mean, the good news of Jesus is that God shows up in skin and is with us no matter how lost we are. That God has not abandoned us. God has not given up on us. And God has not forsaken us. And Ruth, in her chesad love for her mother-in-law, in her refusal to give up on her, she actually proclaims the greater truth about what God is really like and the love that this God actually has for Naomi in the midst of her pain and in the midst of her suffering. 
That's why for us as Christians, we always want to charge into the places where there is hurt and there is pain, not in a place of, of confidence and like we have all the answers, but rather to simply come and be present with those who are hurting and aching, whether they be individuals, whether they be groups of people. For us, we want to live and embody this chesad love and point them to the hope that we all have in Jesus. And now sometimes that means we need to have boundaries and it means that we're not gonna have all the answers. In fact, it actually means we probably don't need to have all the answers because Ruth, she doesn't come to Naomi with a big list of, oh, well, here, let me explain this to you. Let me give you the apologetics behind all the, how this all works out, why this is happening. Instead, she just simply says, no, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. And as she's there, in flesh and blood and skin, right there next to Naomi, Naomi begins to see that God has not given up on her or abandoned her or forsaken her, but yet that this is a God whose chesed love is redeeming and restoring things. I want to conclude our benediction with this psalm, Psalm chapter 13. It's a psalm of David, and here's what it says. It starts in a place of lament and hurting and pain and suffering. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over, triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. That's the word chesad. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Our prayer is that as you go through your week, you would trust in God's chesad, his unfailing love shown and poured out on us through Jesus Christ. We have not been abandoned. We have not been given up on. We have not been forsaken. And as you are present to people in your life who are going through pain and suffering and feel like God has given up on them or isn't there, we can be a glimpse, a taste of that presence as we, in the same way that Ruth binds herself to Naomi in sacrificial love, as we choose to be present with them in the midst of all that they are going through. And so may you go in God's grace and peace with a deeper trust and awareness of God's unfailing love in your life and may your heart rejoice in his salvation. Thanks so much for joining us today. Have an incredible week.